Welcome to the bookcase. I am Kate Gibson, and I am the anxious mother of two. I'm going to introduce myself that way for this show in particular, and why will become clear in just a minute. And I'm Charlie Gibson, father of two, grandfather of five. And today we bring you Mary Laura Philpot. If you don't know her writings, you should. She has written two books, one of them just out, essays on the subject of parenting. And she speaks to all parents, young and old. The two books, the first one is I Miss You When I Blink. The second book, as I say, just out, is Bomb Shelter. And Katie called me when we were talking about how we do early podcasts, and she said, Dad, we've got to book Mary Laura Philpot. How come, Kate? Well, I don't know. I, I don't mean to overgeneralize, and I should really speak to my own experience, but there is something for me as a mom uh, to writers who speak to the humor and the and the neuroses of being a mom, Irma Bombeck, Nora Ephron, and I put Mary Laura Philpott in that club. And writers like that are really important for my sanity, and I'll tell you why. A couple of nights ago, my eight-year-old daughter comes padding into my room in her pajamas, and I think to myself, okay, what's up? Maybe she wants a drink of water. Maybe she needs to use the bathroom. But no, no, she plops herself on the end of my bed and starts asking me questions about death. So I put my book down and I answered uh, the questions in the best way I knew how, which I'm sure was terrible. And the whole time I'm thinking, this is another three years of therapy I'm giving her. This is another three years of therapy bills right here because <laughs> uh, I was not prepared for this conversation. And when she walked out, uh, I thought to myself, oh, God, I don't think I did that right. I, I know when we would get calls from you or your sister that began – Hi, Mom. We knew that things that things were not good, uh, and, and, and that we but were you in did for... also, But you also got the, <laughs> I want it, Dad, <laughs> calls. Yes, we got those calls as well. That's, that's ratcheted up. That's the Hi, Mom on steroids, that call. But, but she does share the anxieties that we all share. The first book, I Miss You When I Blink, is about when her kids were young. That came out about three years ago. The new book, Bomb Shelter, uh, comes as her kids are just about to leave home and the anxieties of that. Uh, just a quick quote. Sometimes when I thought about the children leaving, I had a primal urge to swallow them whole, just absorb them back into my body and keep them with me forever. I know I felt that way. Um, and Kate, I suspect you will someday. So... Even though she talks about the anxieties of parenting, you can always tell in her writing that underlying it all is a deep, underlying, abiding love. Here is Mary Laura Philpott. Mary Laura Philpott, it is a pleasure, pleasure to have you in the bookcase. But you now have two books of essays that sort of bookend your children's lives. Talk a bit about the two books, I Miss You When I Blink and Bomb Shelter. How do they serve as a set? They are they are related. I would say these books are related, but one is not necessarily a sequel to the other. I Miss You When I Blink is very much anchored in my 30s and the reckoning that I was going through as the momentum of my 20s wore off and this to-do list that I had sort of not literally kept on a piece of paper, but had in my mind about these are all the things you've got to do to be a successful adult. You know, you've got to start your career and you get married and you have the baby and you buy the house and then you buy the next house. I had done all those things 
And then I had a minute to take a breath and look around and go, whoop, wait a minute. (laughs) I think where I have landed and the life I have, the everyday life I've built for myself is not necessarily where I want to be. So it was really that sort of mid-30s, I don't know what you call that, one-third life crisis kind of moment. Um, (laughs) And although Bomb Shelter is coming out just three years later, it is anchored about a decade later. So I'm now in my late 40s. Bomb Shelter is very much about this two-year period in the middle of my 40s where I was already kind of... um, grappling with the idea that these babies I had raised had turned into teenagers and were going to be leaving the nest and I was going to have to let them go out into this big, wide, increasingly insane and scary world. And then something happened that just sort of raised the stakes on that feeling. Um, I woke up one morning at 4 a.m. and my husband and I heard this awful thud and it was the sound of my teenage son's body hitting the bathroom floor. He had gotten up to go get a glass of water and just dropped cold, unconscious, onto the tile floor. And um, that, from that morning on, the chaos of that morning, calling 911, the ambulance coming, finding out later that day that, um, unbeknownst to anyone, he had epilepsy and was going to have these seizures for the rest of his life, that then set that clock ticking so much louder. I was thinking, okay, he's he's midway through high school now. I've got, you know, almost two years until he leaves home. How am I going to make sure he's well and he's safe before he leaves the nest? And then thinking that about him made me look out at the rest of the world and go, how do I make sure everyone else is safe? I've got another kid. How do I make sure she's okay? There are threats everywhere. And this anxiety that was growing kind of out of control was in conflict with my natural somewhat sunny optimism. When I read the bathroom moment, I I am a mother to an eight-year-old girl and a three-year-old boy. And it was about a year ago, we put him down for a nap in a bed under the window. We closed the window. We locked the window. We put him down for a nap. Uh, There was a deck under. uh, We went downstairs to have a talk on the deck. And all of a sudden, the screen comes flying out the window. And I look up and there's my son and he's taken his shirt off and he's got his legs hanging out the window. (gasps) And, um, and and of course the crazy thing that went through my head was, oh my God, if the neighbors see he's taken his shirt off, how trashy (laughs) is this going to look? And it took my husband probably all of 30 seconds to get up there and pull him back through the window. But I, I thought to myself, um, this is where it ends. That like, here's the big moment that's been hiding behind the dark curtain all this time. Here it is. Yes. Oh, that just gave me chills, <laughs> picturing the little guy at the window. Oh, my gosh. Well, and there's something, I mean, as a, as a mother who struggled also with infertility, um, mm-hmm. desperately, mm-hmm. with both children. Um, yeah, I know you write very eloquently about it, because I also relate to that feeling of, um, I cheated science, so therefore I don't get to keep yes. them. Yes. Yes, I, I I duped fate. Yes, fate wasn't going to let me have them, and I found a way. And I need to keep it quiet so that I don't. Try, if this is such weird magical thinking. Like I cannot draw the attention of fate, or they will know that I secretly got these two wonderful children, and they will. And it, fate will take them away. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking when I was struggling with infertility. If I have these kids, that'll make me happy. If I can only have these oh, kids, gosh. that will yes. make me happy. And then they come out and you start to realize that you're so invested in them um, that 
now you've got all of these other worries that you didn't anticipate because you were just trying to get to the end of the finish line of having them. That's the great illusion, though, the fi- that imaginary finish line in everything, not just in parenting. <laughs> I think we all walk around going, if I can just get to there, whatever it is, then I can relax and be happy. In everything, in careers, in parenting, in personal life, in our romantic lives, there's always some little shimmering mirage of a finish line out there. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a, a, a copy of Bomb Shelter nearby? I do. And I think the perfect encapsulation of the book is in that last paragraph and the ultimate sentence of the previous paragraph. If you could read, starting with We Take Care, I think it really puts the book in good perspective. We take care of who we can and what we can, near and far, because that's the job. That is life. It's true. There will always be threats lurking under the water where we play, danger hiding in the attic and rolling down the street on heavy wheels, Unexpected explosions in our brains and our hearts and the sky. There will always be bombs, and we will never be able to save everyone we care about. To know that, and to try anyway, is to be fully alive. The closest thing to shelter we can offer one another is love, as deep and wide and in as many forms as we can give it. So both of your books are so deeply personal. At what point do you take sort of your personal musings, your articulate personal musings, and say, I want to make these universal? And then how do you do it? That's a great question. I have to sort of separate the me who is the writer from the me who is the main character in these books and in these essays. I find that very helpful in terms of looking at the material as you know, Nora Ephron would say, everything is copy. When I'm looking at my life as material, I, as an author, can kind of step back and go, okay, there's a story of something that happened that's got a really good universal kernel in it that other people are going to relate to, even if they haven't been through that exact same thing. Now let me switch gears and go into me, the character, and, and remember what was that like and really describe it in the kind of personal specificity that somehow enables the universal. You know, the more specific you can get with something personal, sometimes that makes it mm-hmm. come out as more universal. Mm-hmm. Was there a sort of tripwire moment when you decided maybe maybe there's a general audience in all of this, and maybe I could publish some of this? For years and years early in my career, I was a, a ghostwriter and a corporate communications writer. So I would write for my employers, whoever they were. Um, I worked for the American Cancer Society's National Home Office for a long time. I worked for other companies. So for years, that's how I made my money, was writing in other people's voices about other people's passions. And I found that one of the ways I could kind of warm up in the morning and kind of shake off shake off the dust was to write a few paragraphs of my own, in my own voice about something that was important for me, not even publish it anywhere, just kind of, you know, put it in my laptop and leave it there. And I found that I liked doing that. I liked figuring out what my voice sounded like. And I liked trying to write about things happening in my life. So my mother um, was the headmistress of my school. Oh, wow. And we lived and we lived on campus. And we used to have to establish something called across the street talk, which meant that I was talking to her as a mother 
and not as the administrator of the school that I went oh, that's to. Fantastic. And it was really important that we had that boundary. And so I was wondering when I was reading your, your work, have your kids read your books? And are there ever times where they turn to you and say, this is not for publication, mom? <laughs> That is a great question. Um, I am a, a little bit obsessive about boundaries. I am more obsessive about it than anyone else in my family. I'm more protective of privacy than they are. Both my children have told me that it would be fine to use their names in my books if I wanted to, but I don't. They're old enough now, I think, to give meaningful consent. In particular, my son is an adult now. He can certainly give meaningful consent. When I write, I try to focus what I'm the story I'm telling in my own perspective always. So you will never find me saying, here's a story about my daughter. She thinks this, and she wants this, and she was so disappointed about this. I'm not interested in that. That is a story only she can tell. Only they can tell their own stories. So I always put what I'm writing to the once upon a time test. If I can you know, describe a scene by saying, once upon a time there was a woman who, then I'm good. I've got the perspective in the right place. They do get to read it. They get to have input on it. I would say almost 100% of the time, they are like, yeah, mom, it's fine. You could put more in if you want. And I'm the one going, no, I'm not going to mention where you were, what you said. <laughs> <laughs> one of the delights of all this is that you're funny. Thank you. And I think back to that earlier answer you said when you were writing for the American Cancer Society. <laughs> it, it's not easy to be funny when you're writing for the American Cancer Society. <laughs> Well, first of all, I will say, you actually can be funny writing about cancer. Not that cancer is funny at all, but I do remember very vividly when I was at the American Cancer Society, we were working on a colon cancer awareness campaign with the Ad Council. And the Ad Council came up with the idea for this little cartoon guy called Polyp Man. And oh, God. It was, you know, probably humor that very much belongs in that time. I don't know how well it would stand up to the test of time And his these friend days. Gatorade Boy. I mean- <laughs> right. <laughs> Polyp Man was hysterical. There was a lot of, of comedy in that. There's one blurb that I saw that really resonated with me and I thought was a perfect description of your writing. One reason we read is to know that burst of recognition when someone supplies new language for that which we find indescribable. And I think that's, that's, you bring a fresh outlook to things which are mundane in our lives and in the raising of our, of our children. When Jessica, Kate's older sister, was delivered, mm-hmm. I was in the other room. They didn't let me into the operating room because something went wrong at the last minute. And I went into the room. They came into my, where oh. I was in the waiting room, and they said, you have a baby daughter. And I walked into the room and there was this little yeah. thing on the table, and in an instant, in an instant, I loved that thing more than I've ever loved anything in my life. Yeah. I have to give credit to Nicole Chung, who wrote that, that phrase that you, that you read out loud. She has a column in The Atlantic, um, mm-hmm. and she's a wonderful author as well. She has a beautiful book called All You Can Ever Know. Mm-hmm. That story you just told about meeting your daughter for the first time, I think, is one of those moments that is indescribable until you experience it. And we get so few of them in life, so few of those moments where you see this little razor-fine line between life and whatever is on the other side. And witnessing a birth or witnessing a death, those are moments when you have that. But then there are these other very, very few where you see the line, you know, maybe it doesn't go like when I found my, my son on the floor. He, he didn't die in that moment, but I saw that line. He was right there. 
I don't mean to overgeneralize, but for me, that first kick was the oh, moment yeah. where I thought, okay, everything's changed. Whatever happens, this thing is going to be first in my life. And I am going to go from the driver's seat to the passenger seat. And yep. and it happens before, in some ways, I think, the child comes out. Although when the child comes out, it's certainly, oh, there you are. Hi. Right, right. No, you just I just got goosebumps when you were describing that. It's true. When you feel that first kick, it's like, oh, whoa. I thought I was on one planet, but I am on a completely different planet right now. This is, I've just entered into a whole new world. <laughs> Do you write the essays and then sort of lay them out on the floor and go, Okay, how am I going to put these all together? Or do you have a structure in mind? Because you do, you separate bomb shelters in three parts. So when you sort of oversaw the infrastructure of it, how did you approach it? That's a great, great question. And I'm a big believer that structure is story. The order you put things in determines the story that you're telling. Because whatever you put first, the next thing is a response to that. And how things respond to each other is how you build plot and how you build story. I did it a little differently with each book. With I Miss You When I Blink, I already had a stack of written essays that I hadn't done anything with by the time I decided, hey, I think this could be a book. So I wrote some more. And then I did exactly what you described. I put them down on the floor. I printed them out. I got scissors. I actually was cutting pieces of essays <laughs> and moving them. And it was like the world's messiest puzzle on my floor. And I moved them around until I had really what amounted to a narrative arc that would hold that collection together. And I do think of I Miss You When I Blink more as an essay collection, and I think of Bomb Shelter more as a memoir, um, mm. although it's built out of essays because that's what I know how to do. With Bomb Shelter, I knew from the beginning what story I was telling. I knew where it would begin. I knew where I wanted to land. I knew the last line of that book before I had written most of it. So there was less moving around and guesswork with Bomb Shelter. Mm -hmm. I think it was Edith Wharton who said that in the first sentence of a book, you should be able to encapsulate the whole book. Um, and I think you did it oh, in thanks. the first book with your title, not the first sentence, but your title, I Miss You When I Blink. Explain that and what it means and how Yeah, thank how that you. Um, I love that. I be. love that quote and I love that whole idea. That's one of the reasons Bomb Shelter begins with the prelude that it does is because I wanted to kind of encapsulate the whole book right up front. I Miss You When I Blink... It's not a phrase I made up. It is a phrase my son made up when he was little. He was about six years old, and this was in my um, ghostwriting, freelancing days. I think I was writing, I think I was down in my basement office, and I was writing like a brochure about suitcases or something really <laughs> not all that fun, but they were paying me, so I was doing it. And he wanted to go to the park, and so I handed him a notepad and a pencil, and I said, okay, I have to finish my writing before we can go to the park, so you do some writing. And when we're both finished... We'll, we'll go. So I went back to my keyboard and I could hear him over there kind of sing-song, talking to himself while he wrote. And he was writing a little poem. And it was like, blah, 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 blah. I miss you when I blink. And I said, wait, what? Say that again. And he said, I miss you when I blink. And he was so tickled because it got my attention because I just thought it was cute. And I also thought it was so profound. I was like, look at my little six-year-old child saying he misses me when he blinks. I have raised a genius. <laughs> the I miss you part made me think about missing myself. You know, so much of I miss you when I blink is about reckoning with the difference between where I landed by my mid-30s and where I meant to set out early in adulthood. I missed myself and time had gone by in a blink. And I just put all this meaning on it that he, he never intended. You know, the poem was like, I miss you in the rink. I'm playing in the sink. I miss, you know, it, he was just rhyming. But I put all this heavy adult meaning onto it. Kate's mother, my wife, as Kate mentioned, was the headmistress of a private school, K through 12. And the, the kindergartners would come in and they would walk up 
stairs hand in hand with their new best friend. And the parents would be sitting there. And my wife had to say something profound, I guess, to to mark the moment. Oh, And she yeah. would always say to the new parents, don't blink. Don't miss yeah, no anything. Pressure. Don't <laughs> blink. And that's why the title resonates with me. And then I thought your second title, Bomb Shelter, was very apt for what you described um, in that you want, to, you want to build this shield, this shelter around the children to make sure that all of the undertoads that can affect them in life won't, uh, that they'll be safe. Um, and yeah. then you put on the cover Frank a the turtle. turtle, Frank, who has his own shelter in effect. It's a nice way of, of, of as I say, of bookending it. Yeah. It, well, Frank is lucky. He has that built-in built-in physical barrier against threats. Human beings don't have that. We're just these little, you know, skin balloons, and we're so easily punctured, and we have to come up with our own protective things. And unfortunately, that can get out of control sometimes. And our brain, I shouldn't say our, my brain, starts seeing threats everywhere and going, okay, now how am I going to live so that I dodge every single threat, which can become exhausting and obsessive. But um, yeah, I love I love Frank. I was very happy that he got to be on the cover. I wanted to ask you actually if, I mean, when you, because I, I am also like you, I, I think if I anticipate something, it'll make it easier when it actually happens. Right. So, right. you know, when you write about these things, does it purge you? I mean, is it, a th- is it therapeutic? You know, I just talked about this in therapy the other day. <laughs> My therapist said, she said, you know, you tell yourself these stories. <laughs> about what's going to happen. And you think that if you tell yourself every possible story that could happen, you're going to ward off the bad ones. But you know it doesn't work that way. And I'm like, I know it doesn't work that way, but I can't stop it. (laughs) Putting um, stories into a book doesn't have as much of that effect because I'm generally telling stories about things that have already happened. It does help me look back and get perspective to look back and go, okay, so this thing happened. And I remember at the time I thought, oh, no, this is the end of the world. Well, clearly it wasn't the end of the world because here I am writing about it. So in a way, it, it, it does have a little therapeutic value in that it's, it gives some perspective. We will follow our conversation with you with a chat with the folks at Parnassus Books. Wonderful. The independent bookstore, the great independent bookstore in Nashville. And I gather you... You worked there for a while. Yes, indeed. I worked there for, I want to say, six six or seven years. Really, until right before I Miss You When I Blink came out. I went on book leave. Why are independent booksellers so important? They're the cultural backbones of their communities. I mean, a bookstore is, a bookstore is one of the last places you can go and have curiosity welcomed and have different attitudes and opinions welcomed and be able to connect people with something they may not have thought about before. I think one of the things we are losing in our culture is the ability to tolerate nuance and curiosity and opinions that maybe aren't all the way at one spectrum or the other. And if we can introduce people through stories to ideas that they may not have had before or levels of empathy that they may not have had before, we can actually shape people's minds a little bit and and move them. And I think that's the power of books. That's the power of story. They serve a cultural and, and nurturing role in a way that no no online ordering system can serve. 
Mary Laura Philpott, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Charlie and Kate. This has been so much fun. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, rapid-fire question. Book, e-reader, or audio? Oh, book. Book, book, book. Although I will say, I'm learning to appreciate audio more. I do like audio when I travel, and when I do listen to an audiobook, I use Libro FM, which is the app that supports indie bookstores. Do you spend more time reading or writing? Oh, reading. Yeah. Most influential book in your life? <gasps> That's such a hard question to answer, but I'm going to say the first thing that pops into my head, which is, never let me go. By Kazuo Ishiguro. Your favorite book to read to your kids? <gasps> oh man, I still—I mean, I still remember Go Dog Go, teaching them to read with Go Dog Go. Any revered book you're sorry you read? <laughs> so many. Out of professional courtesy, I will not mention any contemporary writers, but I don't love the classics quite so much as, as many of my writing friends do. I, I have no desire to go back and reread Shakespeare. Do you finish, so if you pick up a book and you, and you, and you start it and you know you're not, gonna, you're not liking it, do you put it down? I do put it down. And I recently had to do that with a book. I'm not going to say what book it was, but it's a, a fairly new book, beautifully written. I would give it awards for how good a book it is, literarily speaking, but it was the wrong book for my psychology at the moment, and it was giving me very high, like higher than normal anxiety, and I, for my own good, I said, I'm going to have to revisit you later, and I closed it, and I put it away. With Bomb Shelter, will you read your reviews? Oh, God, I try not to. Um, I think I will have an easier time avoiding them this time because I am not working in the job I was working with my last book. So when I Miss You When I Blink came out, I was still working in marketing. I had just gone on book leave, but I worked in marketing for a bookstore. It had been my job every day to check like all the social media about all reviews of all books. I was kind of like out on the internet like this, trying not to see it. I think I can avoid them better this time. 
Although I will say, if I get a really, really good review, and I, there was one in particular for I Miss You When I Blink, um, my husband <laughs> breaks my rule and calls me and, and reads it to me over the phone. So I hope I get at least one experience like that with Bomb Shelter. My guiltiest reading pleasure is... Oh, I don't feel guilt about anything I love. If, if I like it, I have no guilt. There's a book I recommend all the time, and sometimes people are like, really? It's, um, you may have read it. It's called Hyperbole and a Half by Allie Brosh. Oh, my word, Kate, Charlie. It is good fun. But it's, um, she's, a, she's a cartoonist. She had a long-running cartoon online that was just like hysterically weird and wonderful. And to me, she articulates anxiety and depression in an amazingly spot-on and also very funny way. And it is not necessarily literarily in keeping with what I typically like, but I love that book. So that's one that probably sometimes people are like, is that your guilty pleasure? But I don't feel guilty about it at all. I love it. And finally, in five words, what do you want the rest of your life to be? Charlie, you were giving that to me as a quick answer question. Okay, five words. Does it have to be a sentence or just five disconnected words? It can be five disconnected words. Feel free to use a pen and paper if you need. All right, I'm just, I'm just, you want this to be a lightning round, I'm just going to yell out words that, that I want. Peaceful. I understand that this is impossible and it's the whole point of bomb shelter, but... I want safety for my loved ones, so safe, love, healthy longevity. Those were two. That's fine. So that was five. five. I would like us to live a long time, but in a healthy way. I don't want to be around forever, but not well. Mary Laura Philpott, who has such an original way in her essays of talking about parenthood. And Kate, when you listen to that conversation, what's your takeaway? Well, first of all, she inspires me to think about life's moments as potential writing moments. I love that, the way she talks about putting her life to paper, I think is amazing. The thing that I take away, though, is as I read these two books, in some ways, I am at the life phase of I Miss You When I Blink. And Bomb Shelter is going to be about the emptiness that inevitably comes. Um, and I, <laughs> I have to say, I'm a little worried about the fact that those anxieties, that nervousness never goes away because I, I feel like I keep living for the moment when I won't have to worry anymore. One of the things that Mary-Laura Philpott told us as we talked to her was that she had moved from Atlanta to Nashville, which is now her home, because she wanted to work in a wonderful bookstore in Nashville. This was before she became a published author, and she worked for five or six years in the Parnassus Bookstore, which is a prominent independent bookstore in Nashville. So, as we've said, we have affiliated this podcast with a number of independent bookstores around the country, and one of the bookstores that we chose and thought would be interesting was Parnassus. 
nice coincidence. It was. It's There's so many great independent bookstores across the country. It's nice when the guest dictates exactly the one you should talk to. It was also nice uh, for me to hear in this interview that Mary Laura still has a continuing love affair with Parnassus. Relationships with bookstores can be lifelong, and they can be really rewarding relationships. So let's get to Karen Hayes at Parnassus Books. Well, thank you for thinking of us for this. And I, I really appreciate that you also interviewed Mary Laura. We, she's a good, good friend in the store. Oh, she's a delight. Mm-hmm. Karen, it seems to me when Mary Laura, who spoke so highly of the Parnassus bookstore in Nashville, when she first published, you gained an author to sell and you lost an employee. That is true. Yeah, it was bittersweet. Does she sell very well in Nashville? Oh my gosh, she sells like crazy. We've got 500 books waiting for her for Bomb Shelter for her to sign, and I know we'll sell more. Oh, terrific. Parnassus is an unusual name. How do you come by the name, and and what does it symbolize in, in what you do? Well, it started, I was a sales rep for Random House uh, for 18 years, calling on independent bookstores. And a friend gave me this lovely book that was written in 1917 called Parnassus on Wheels. And it was about a traveling woman that traveled and sold books on a horse-drawn cart. It was a really sweet, funny book. And I thought, oh, that's a great name. It's unusual. But then when I started looking into it, I saw that Mount Parnassus is uh, in Greece, and is considered the home of the muses, the home of poetry, literature, art, music. And Nashville is the Athens, supposedly, of the South. So what is coming out over the next couple of months that you are excited about for your customers? Well, we've got, obviously, Bomb Shelter is coming out. There's a book called Lessons in Chemistry. It's a really wonderful book set in the 60s, a woman who is a chemist, but she is not taken seriously by her co-workers. She finds out she has a talent for cooking because it's basically chemistry. She ends up being a very, very popular cooking show host. And it's really just a delightful book. Karen, are there regional writers that you feel really capture Tennessee? Oh, well, I think Margaret Rinkle is just an amazing writer. She lives here in Nashville, and you may know her not just from her two books of essays, but she writes for the New York Times. Uh, She's one of their opinion guest columnists, and she really just captures the South beautifully. She's just (laughs) somebody that you listen to and you just nod your head and say, that's the way it should be. That's the way the ideal South would be. Um, So she's the one I I would recommend uh, the most. Ann Patchett, of course, one of the owners of the store and her recent book of essays has gotten uh, such extraordinary response. Um, Bel Canto, of course, a book that people love, but but her essays really are special. it, It really... She was actually up for the pen also. She and Margaret went together, and and they just had so much fun, even though they were competing with each other for that award. And we did come through COVID well. Because of Anne, a lot of that is due to Anne, with our online sales. And in fact, last year, our sales were stronger than they were in 2019. Why independent bookstores are so vital uh, to, to, to their lives? 
Well, first, they're locally owned. So the people that are employed there are local. We partner with local establishments like the Downtown Public Library, the Humanities Tennessee that does the Southern Festival of Books every year. Uh, we work with Bookham that gives books to kids. It's all community. Bookstores are great. All the best to you. Uh, no, thank great you. Great success to Parnassus and great success to all the Greek gods who, uh, <laughs> who inhabit your store. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Karen Hayes from the Parnassus Bookstore in Nashville, Tennessee. Every book should have a good ending, a last sentence, a something that, that makes you close the book and, and smile. And we couldn't think of a better way to end each of these podcasts than, than to go back to our principal interviewee and a little coda to take us off the air. And a reminder, those responsible for this podcast are... The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohen, Iru Ekpanobi, and Elizabeth Russo. And a little coda to take us off the air. Mary Laura? Take care of one another. Perfect. Thank you very, very much. Yes, Um, thank you. It's been a delight. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.